welcome to Visionaries, a podcast that demonstrates you don't need a great deal of eyesight in order to be a visionary. I am, as always, your humble correspondent and host. My name is John Steinberg, joined by my immensely talented co-host, who goes by the name of... Santino Maoni. Happy to be here once again for another great episode of Visionaries. And we are going to kick it off with our first segment, as we always do, Words to Live By. So John, the quote I selected for this week is as such, start by doing what's necessary, then do what's possible. And suddenly you are doing the impossible by Francis of Assisi. I'm not sure how to pronounce that completely, but that is the quote there. I'll repeat it one more time. Start by doing what's necessary, then do what's possible. And suddenly you are doing the impossible. So John, when you hear that quote, what does it make you think of? What does it invoke in you? Give me your thoughts on the quote. Goal setting, being able to effectively put one foot in front of the other, being able to walk before morphing into a sprint, setting reasonable, attainable goals, uh, not allowing whatever it is that lay ahead in front of you to derail what's truly important. So maybe we don't focus on wow, what is my life going to look like in 10 years? Where am I going to be? What am I going to be doing? Am I going to be married, et cetera, et cetera? Maybe we scale it back and start with, where am I going to be next month? And where would I like to be? How exactly do I go about making all of that happen? So you can apply this to really any walk of life. In the past, we've discussed dating, cooking, being able to navigate a city independently. And each of these pursuits begins with a single step. Yeah, and it really, it makes me think of the fact, you know, people can get overwhelmed extremely easily by overthinking, by trying to do too much at once, by trying, like you said, to think, oh my God, what am I going to do in 10 years? What am I going to do in 15 years? Oh my God, I'm not even close to what I want to be doing if they do know what they want to do. However, it's, it, it doesn't have to be that complicated. You can simplify it, like you said, by setting minor goals, short-term goals, doing what, you're, you know, by, begin by doing what you must do, by what, like how he said, what's necessary. Then do what is possible. Do what is, with, do what is within your control in that moment of what you are trying to accomplish. And if you continue to do that step-by-step, little-by-little, you eventually will be doing what I, from what he's saying, you'll be doing what, you yourself perceived as impossible, but now is possible because of those steps that you took, if that makes sense. Yeah. And this quote comes from, I mean, the gentleman, the Franciscan order is named after the gentleman who uttered these words. Uh, Someone who dedicated his life to what he believed to be embodying the spirit of the Christian message living like uh, Jesus Christ. And that takes guts. I mean, that takes bravery to not allow yourself to be distracted by the earthly pleasures uh, that you encounter or anything that you'd actually be able to tap into on a physical level. Instead, focusing on a higher path, on really adhering to a set of guiding principles, that's tough. That's far too intimidating for most people. For most people, I would think it's very difficult to see beyond 
the actual day that you happen to be living in. And with Francis of Assisi, he was a gentleman who he led his life based upon, yes, a series of guiding principles. They were not easy to stick to, but you know what? He did it anyway because he had a larger goal in mind. And I'd like to think that we all have both long range goals and then shorter term goals. Definitely. And in an ideal scenario, you'd be able to meet one looking ahead to the next one without allowing the overall mission to derail or throw you off course because you're just intimidated. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And Something you mentioned also uh, when like, when you first when I first asked you what this quote kind of invoked in you what you thought about it is you know this applies to stuff that you've done as well in terms of you know learning to cook doing what you know something that you weren't very um, I guess fond of or something that you didn't you weren't very good at even before you lost your eyesight and then losing your eyesight kind of having to again almost relearn it all over again and doing something that you legitimately thought was impossible. But again, you did the research, you took the steps, you did what was necessary, then did what's possible. And then you did what, again, in, in your mind, you said, you know what, I feel like this might be impossible. That's what you perceived it as. But and from the story that you told on the previous episode, but at the end of the day, you kind of did what this quote is laying out in a way and then achieved again what you perceived was impossible. So that's something that I thought of, not just with the cooking, but things in general, whether it applies to your life, mine or anybody that you can, and like you said, you can apply it to anything anybody is trying to do. And that's the beauty of this quote, I think. We're going to move on to our next segment, Handprints Hall of Fame, where like John always likes to say, you have to imagine our inductees putting their hands in the dirt in front of Grauman's Chinese Theater. And in this episode, we are inducting legendary MLB, former MLB pitcher, Jim Abbott. So John, tell us a little bit about Jim Abbott, what he did in his career, and why we chose him to induct in our Hamperts Hall of Fame. Jim Abbott was born without the use of one of his hands. The hand was not properly formed. And in that instance, you'd imagine, well, a baseball career is probably out of the question. You'd be wrong, because Jim Abbott went on to amass a total of around 86 career wins. He was inducted into the College Baseball Hall of Fame for his noted achievements at the University of Michigan. And the real super high watermark for Mr. Abbott's career came in 1993 when pitching for the New York Yankees, he tossed a no hitter against the <laughs> Cleveland Indians. The odds were stacked against Jim Abbott in a way that is almost impossible to be able to wrap your head around. And yet he fought through all of the doubters. He, like we were mentioning in the last segment, took it step by step. Before arriving on campus at Michigan, Jim Abbott excelled as a high schooler playing in the backyard of Ann Arbor over in Flint. He actually also played quarterback. I was going to say, yeah, he played quarterback as well. Yeah, but continue. And he overcame the most severe set of challenges imaginable for a competitive athlete 
think about the biggest possible stage. You are pitching for the Yankees of New York, the marquee franchise in not only Major League Baseball, but one of the three quintessential American sports franchises, period. And he was able to hurl a no-hitter. Now, after the no-hitter kind of bounced around the league a little bit, the no-hitter was definitely the pinnacle of his athletic achievements. But he did go on to pitch for a number of years following the no-hitter. And now he actually serves as a motivational speaker. He is a successful author and an all-around exemplary humanitarian. So it's for all of these reasons that we have decided to enshrine one Jim Abbott into our illustrious Handprints Hall of Fame. But Santino, you did select Mr. Abbott for induction this week. Yeah. What drew you to his story? Well, number one is a Yankee. I mean, I'm a Yankees <laughs> fan. Like, I mean, I gotta, I mean, you know, that's not the main reason, obviously. I'm kidding. But yeah, he's he's obviously a former Yankee. But the man played forget even like you know you talked about the pitching the no hitter and all the accomplishments he had i mean when he played quarterback i believe it was in high school he got the start in the in the final 3 games of the year throwing over for over 600 yards and six touchdowns that's unreal if you look at just the specific stats but moving to what you know my main reasoning for picking him was he had something a disability that he had to overcome. And that I think is the main thing that we try to embody with Handprints Hall of Fame and in the podcast in general is that you could have a disability. You may have an illness. You may have an obstacle you must overcome. Uh, I would say without a shadow of a doubt, Jim Abbott 100% did that and much, 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 much more. That not only did he, uh, did he accomplish what he wanted to accomplish in just playing baseball because his parents, when he was a child suggested that he play soccer because they, they felt soccer would be an easier path for him. That's not what he wanted to do. Jim wanted to play baseball. And at the age of 11, he finally made his first uh, little league baseball team. And from there, obviously his career took off, but it was for the main purpose of the fact that, listen, this man was born without his, with, without his right hand. And he still managed to go play for like you mentioned, if not the, one of the most historical, you know, m- m- most well-known sport f- sports franchises in, in all of sports. He's up there with the Lakers, the Celtics, teams like that. The Yankees are iconic. And he pit- and not only did he pitch for them, but like you mentioned, he pitched a no-hitter in a Yankees, in the pinstripes, in a Yankees uniform. That is just unfathomable to, I feel like anybody who's heard his story if, if you had told them that let's let, let's say if you hadn't heard Jim Abbott's story and you walked up to somebody on the street and you said, oh, a guy with, uh, with, with without his right hand actually pitched a no hitter in an MLB baseball game. They think you're nuts. They think you're on drugs. They, they would think you're crazy. But the fact that he did that with all the obstacles he had to face, that is why I wanted to select him to be in our handprints hall of fame, as well as obviously me being a sports fan and looking up to the guy because of what he did and, He's a Yankee. Why can I not pick him? A wonderful <laughs> collection of reasons, my yeah. man. Yeah. So Jim Abbott, congratulations. You are the latest member of the Handprints Hall of Fame. All right, John, that was a great way to close that segment out. We'll move on to our next segment, Profiles Encouraged. John, please introduce the guest we have on our show today. 
We have the distinguished honor of welcoming onto Visionaries my amazing sister-in-law, Jennifer Lowe. Jenny, how's it going? It's going well. Hello. So we wanted to have you on because you have a truly inspiring story. So uh, Jennifer is a cancer survivor. Um, so would you just kind of tell our audience um, kind of a bit about like how old you were and what the diagnosis was and what doctors told you? Sure. So I was 33 at the time um, and I was diagnosed with DCIS, which for me was stage zero breast cancer. Um, it, it started with, with a discharge and at first there was, you know, uh, diagnosis that it, it, it wasn't anything really to be worried about, uh, but further testing and multiple MRIs and, and biopsies then led to um, the breast cancer diagnosis. So uh, it was extremely unexpected. I do not have a family history of breast cancer. Uh, I did the genetic testing and that all came negative and I was 33. So uh, definitely something I was not anticipating that I would have to face at such a young age. So when you received the diagnosis, what sort of went through your head about, okay, what comes next? You know, I, I, I am so young. Um, where to sort of go from here? What, what were your thoughts um, when you did get that diagnosis? I was devastated. I immediately cried. I called my sister, your, your beautiful wife, Lisa. Um, and I, I, I cried for three days straight. Um, it was something that it was such a hard thing to accept and know that this was going to be my reality. And I am naturally just a warrior and an overthinker. So immediately starting to panic of what is my life going to be like, you know, being a young female, uh, of course, breasts and hair, um, it defines a lot of what a woman is and her femininity. So of course you have that self-doubt and you question your confidence and would I be beautiful? Would I be sexy? Would I be all of those things that you just kind of at now at this age and looking back seems so superficial, but everything kind of runs through your head and, and you don't know when you're first diagnosed to what extent the cancer is and what stage it's at. So immediately I went to the worst and just knowing like, what was my life going to be like? And I knew that eventually like everything would be okay and it would take steps. I had an amazing support system and a, a great team of doctors uh, that I trusted very much, but nonetheless, like you panic and you worry and uh, extremely stressed and, and distraught, really. Um, so you actually work in, can I call it the beauty industry? Is that? Yes, of course. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So did you have conversations with people that you work with and how did this diagnosis impact your professional life? I have to say, um, I am to this day so grateful for my boss at the time, the team that I had, and also the global team that, that I work for, they were extremely um, understanding and supportive and very much put me first and had the mentality of do whatever you need to do. We got you, we support you. 
um, don't worry about this. And so I think for me, that had a lot to do in being part of my, my support system so that I could heal and handle and know that, let me handle this. Let me focus on myself and prioritize myself and I'll come back and be better than ever. And, and I work for a company, um, a hair tool company called GHD and our corporate social responsibility every year, we do a collection for breast cancer awareness. And so every year when we do that collection, that's my favorite one, uh, regardless of everything that we launch because of that personal tie in and raising money to support uh, breast cancer charities globally. And so to, to work for a company who sees the value in that and the importance of self-checking and um, breast cancer awareness in, in young women, um, one of the things that I think going through this and breast cancer, knowing that one in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer. And that stat alone is kind of scary. And, you know, going through everything and, and then knowing that women, breast cancer is the most common cancer in women between ages 15 and 39, which is a, a shocking um, stat too. So, you know, just knowing, I, I think I was so, I don't know if you want to call it naive or ignorant, or I just never thought it would be something that I would have to face in my early thirties. Uh, but it's, it's more common than, than we may think. Yeah, that's, and that's awesome to hear about the fact that you took something that impacted your life so greatly, whether it be, you know, taken as negatively or positively and turned it into that clear and utter positive within your company and raising awareness for the, for the illness, which is incredible that you were able to do that. The question I wanted to ask you, what role did your family and friends kind of play during this time in your life, having to go through that experience? What role did they play in, in that time? They were my everything and the reason I was probably able to um, get through whatever I needed to get through and the surgeries and everything. Uh, my sister was at every single doctor's appointment that I had to go and, and it was a lot. It was a lot of doctor's appointments, uh, but she was at every single one. Uh, when I went through my surgeries, I moved back in with my parents for six weeks and they kind of supported me and I'm a very private person. And so it was very important for me to surround myself with a core group of people who I knew one loved and supported me and just had the, my best interests. And keeping that circle kind of close and tight was uh, what I needed to, to heal and to be in the right mindset to, all right, let's, let's get through this and, uh, and move on with life. Yeah, and obviously, you know, you elaborated on your family and how much they, again, helped you persevere through that time. Was there one thing almost, I guess, internally that just kind of kept you going and that motivated you to keep fighting and get through that time in your life? I think it was my mindset. I was very, um, I was very strict on having this, this, I didn't want to have a victim mentality. I didn't, and, and that probably has a lot to do with why I kept this kind of private. I think there's a lot of people, even in my social circle now that don't know I'm a breast cancer survivor because I didn't want to have this victim mentality or have pity on, on what I was going through. And it was just a mindset of, I'm going to get through this. The amount of times I, I just chanted to myself, everything's going to be okay. I'm going to get through this. And it's just having that mindset because it's so easy to go down a di like a 
a downward spiral and um, start to feel sorry for yourself. And one thing I was very um, adamant about was, was not to ask the question, why me? Because in asking that question, why me? It's almost like I'm indirectly wishing it upon someone else. And, and listen, I'm no saint, but I'm not gonna wish something bad upon somebody else. And so if these were the cards that I was dealt, I knew that I had the right support system to get me through it and that I would, I would be okay. So just having that, that mindset of this is it, I'm going to do it. I don't want to deal with this again. And, and it's something I'm reminded every time I have to get checked, I'm, I'm considered high risk. Um, and it's just part of my new normal and it's my new reality that I just had to adjust to. Yeah, and you had you had to adapt to it, and again, you just had to roll with the punches, take what you were dealt with, and just go from there. And I, again, I, I've being around John, I've kind of been exposed to that same kind of thing, where it's just that, like how you mentioned, you're dealt the cards you're dealt with. That's what you're dealt, and you just have to go with that. Do what you have to do, and persevere. And that's exactly what you did. My final final question for you, my grandma, she's a two she is a two time breast cancer survivor, so. I kind of wanted to ask for anybody out there who may be struggling with that, with this same, you know, just struggling with breast cancer in general, any disability, illness, whatever it may be, as somebody who got through it, what encouraging words would you give to them? What advice would you give the, give to them to motivate them and help them get through again, that time in their life, if they're dealing with that? I think it is to remain positive and to lean on the people that uh, make you happy and who, who love you and who are there to have your best interest. And if you got through it once, um, you can get through it again, you have it in you. Um, and hopefully it's not something that's a reoccurring thing, but um, I think as humans, we are very resilient if we want to be. And so if you have that kind of will, then um, you can, you can get through it and um, just making sure that you, you stay positive throughout. Most definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on visionaries and uh, talking with us. As I mentioned, ever since I've known you, I felt that your story was truly inspiring and I'm so glad that you were able to come on and uh, talk to us and inform our audience. Thank you for having me. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jennifer, so much for coming on our show. That story was truly inspiring. John, how did you feel about having her on as a guest? You recommended her, so I'm curious your thoughts. I have never heard Jennifer talk at length about what it was like to go through all of that. Uh, So it was, yes, in addition to, like I said, being an inspiring story, uh, it was terrific to hear her talk about what a fighter she is. And uh, that is my sister-in-law. So we are family and I am overjoyed that uh, we are. Love having fellow fighters in in the mix. Definitely. We'll move on to our next segment, respect and representation in the media. John, you've been wanting to talk about this for a while now. You recommended it to me a few times and we're finally going to get to analyze the, I don't know if you want to call him infamous, whatever word you want to use. That, that's appropriate, yeah, I think. The infamous Mr. Magoo. So, John, why would you want to uh, pick him to pick his movie, just him, him as a character in general to analyze for this segment? Well, if we want to talk about the, let's say, holy grail for offensive, uh, visually impaired characters, pretty sure it's Mr. Magoo. He 
was on my radar as a kid before my retinitis pigmentosa really reared its ugly head. So as a kid, like I remember seeing Mr. Magoo in theaters, unfortunately. Sorry for the spoiler alert, but uh, we, we, we don't love Mr. Magoo. So bear yeah. with <laughs> us as we kind of catalog some of the reasons why we feel the way that we do. But Mr. Magoo, yes, very infamous among the visually impaired community. The movie, the 1997 film that we're going to talk about in a second, yeah. actually came with a warning. I, I, well, okay, a disclaimer from Disney near the end that played right before the credits where they acknowledged the character might be deemed offensive to certain folks and were not blah, 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 trying to protect themselves, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but yes, revisiting Mr. Magoo was certainly a long range objective. And uh, so what did you think? It was the first time that you'd been introduced to the character and uh, you got to see him on both the small and the big screen. Well, I guess they're both small because you watched them yeah. both on a television. Um, but you know what I mean. Yeah. I wish I never had to watch that. I'll be <laughs> honest. I, I, I know it was for the show, obviously, to inform myself and to understand the character and what the heck was going on in, in the movie. I wish I never watched the movie. If, if we even put aside Mr. The, the, the laughing stock that is the character of Mr. Magoo, I the movie itself, I believe it had like a seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Seems high. It, Seems I, high. I, a I, high. I, yeah, I, maybe like a three I, is what I'd put it at, if not lower than that. But it was atrocious. It was not a good story. I was confused the entire time. I didn't understand what was going on. Um, I just it just didn't make sense to me. And Mr. Magoo, we, we we looked at Ron Burgundy in Anchorman 2 and how, you know, his blindness caused him to act like a buffoon, you want to say, an idiot, a moron, whatever word you want to use. He was helpless. And Mr. Magoo, I'll point to one specific scene. He's he's trying to cook chicken in his house and his dog comes in and clicks the remote and, it sh and the television shifts from the cooking instructions to a workout video. And he takes the legs of the chicken and he starts just moving it up. And I'm like, how are you this like, how are you this gullible, like stupid? Like what, like what is happening? And literally the movie, in my opinion, was the blindness was used as a plot device to make blind people look like they don't know how to in like interact and move around in the world it, it, i don't know if that's how you thought but it just that's what it made me feel like that blind people literally have no ability and no way to just know what was going on the character was gullible he was easily deceived um he was clueless half the time i mean he kissed a fish i, I just i it was just i know this might a lot of this might not even make sense when i'm saying he kissed a fish because there was a woman who was trying to rob him and try it was trying to deceive him and she was trying to almost seduce him to get close to him to rob him and essentially she lied that she wanted to kiss him and then put a fish out in front of him and he kissed the fish and did and just seemed to not register that it was a fish I you know like he doesn't have a sense of smell or anything I don't even know the movie was terrible I kind of rambled there but it just confused me the character was bad the way they incorporated the blindness was terrible one of the worst things i've seen on a screen so, it sounds like uh it really won you <laughs> over man oh yeah it was it was amazing yeah, yeah. <laughs> so a little background on the character uh this 
creation was dreamt up in the year of our Lord, 1949, by a fellow by the name of Kaufman, Miller Kaufman, who drew the character. See, it's originally a cartoon. You had to walk before you could run. We had to have this uh, wacky, zany, yes, gullible, nearsighted uh, elderly gentleman. We had to see him in the pages of uh, comic books and then in cartoon form before the live action treatment. And I was under the assumption that following the 1997 film adaptation and the fact that it was not a commercial success that the character would have sort of been retired. And I was astounded to see that not only was this not the case, there was actually a direct-to-video sequel released. Um, Santino, you don't have to watch that one. Oh, I uh, yeah, yeah. Called Kung Fu Magoo, oh my God. which clues us in a little bit to, I suppose, what it's about. Uh, the character was revitalized in France for um, a television program. One of those characters that seriously, I thought, okay, let's um, maybe uh, walk out into the sunset there, old pal. But nope, he is still very much a part of the discussion, amazingly. So this 1997 film directed by Stanley Tong in his only English production a filmmaker from Hong Kong who specializes, specialized in action movies. The director made several films with Jackie Chan, doubling down on his reputation as an action director. He actually presided over movies like Rumble in the Bronx. It's probably his most famous movie. Uh, and a couple of others that drew massive audiences. So it seemed rather curious to me that you would take an action filmmaker from Hong Kong and go, you know what? Let's have him direct the live remake of Mr. Magoo. That seems like the gentleman we need to uh, enlist for this production. Not the same genre. It was just like, what? Like, yeah, Not I... the same genre, the same language. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it seems like a, a same quality movie, right? Like, yeah, a, a a very peculiar decision uh, to to do that uh, here. Also, the first time that I think I registered Jennifer Garner as a person. So yes, Jennifer Garner is in uh, 1997's Mr. Magoo, playing a character whose name is so preposterous. I can't even begin to pronounce it yeah uh the movie is also populated with other sort of character actors Stephen Tobolowski is is in the mix playing a gentleman whose last name I think is Stupik he's a detective whose last name is Stupik because <laughs> that's really funny yeah uh we get one of the villains from Con Air uh Kelly Lynch who's the love interest in Roadhouse makes an appearance and Malcolm McDowell chewing on the scenery here appears as the villain um, him being most widely acclaimed for his performance at a clockwork orange and then it's leslie nielsen as 
J. Quincy Magoo. So the character, for those of you who didn't have to go back and watch the film or any of the television properties associated with the character, he's an older man, seems to be in his 70s, yeah, I want to say 70s, who finds himself in a great deal of bizarre situations, like the one outlined by Santino with cooking the chicken and mistaking an aerobics video for cooking instructions. The blindness here is always presented in a joking manner. And as an audience, here's the important thing, as I see it, we're not laughing with him. We are laughing at him, don't you think? As you mentioned in Anchorman 2, yeah, it's the same thing that you're just, you find yourself going, oh, this idiot, like, what is he doing? Instead of, instead of, like you said, yeah, instead of laughing with him, you're laughing at him. And that should not be the goal of, of, of that kind of movie, in my opinion. Right. So we recently talked about the Don't Breathe franchise and its depiction of a blind villain who was awarded these menacing properties that don't seem like they align with any other human that I've ever encountered. He's basically turned into an over-the-top, difficult to wrap your head around monster. And here he is, I don't think it's an insult to say, he's a bumbling buffoon. And that's the entirety of his identity. There's nothing thoughtful about the portrayal. There's nothing heartwarming about it. As Roger Ebert wrote in his semi-iconic review for the Chicago Sun-Times, the film is, quote-unquote, transcendently bad. Mm-hmm. He also drives an eggplant mobile. We didn't even mention that yet. An eggplant mobile? Yeah, the eggplant mobile that he drives, which honestly, Roger, uh, sorry, Roger Eber, he says that it was almost a failed attempt at a Wienermobile, <laughs> which, he, which he felt was itself funnier than anything actually in the movie, any of the characters. I thought it was just funny, the fact, why is he driving a vehicle shaped like an eggplant? I'm trying to grab, like, I was trying to grasp my head around everything that was happening in that movie, and I just simply could not. Forget even the blindness for a second. The movie itself, there is no concrete story. There is no character arc. There is nothing about this movie that would make it an enjoyable watch, unless, you know, you like to watch bad movies, I guess. You're just, I don't know, you're not going to enjoy this. But I had to mention that because we didn't even cover the eggplant mobile. And that is probably the most confusing thing out of all. And it's actually the third film that we've examined that uses this kind of device. uh, Something's been mistaken or misplaced. We saw it in Wait Until Dark with the doll containing... Yep. Uh, apparently enough heroin to drive people uh, to the ends of the earth to kill for. Uh, And in Don't Breathe, it's, well, he's sitting on top of something super valuable, and that's why these villainous criminals are breaking and entering into his home. These are three blind characters, and it's all kind of the same well, they can't see, so how would they know? They can't see. It's all sort of tapping into the lack of eyesight as a means to construct a plot. 
And whenever we do this in media, in entertainment, and we don't go through the effort of fully fleshing out a character, we're never going to write, uh, end up on the right side of the debate. In Mr. Magoo, we aren't presented with a character. We are presented with a caricature, which perhaps works far better in the pages of a comic book or as a cartoon. I understand, okay, this is a comedy. It's a silly comedy, we're doing the silly things and uh, we're all meant to laugh and go home. Nonetheless, we need to ask more from the things that we consume. What was he like when he was a younger person? Has he always been uh, this, shall we say, gullible, prone to mistaking things for other things? What's going on behind door number two, if you will? I don't think it's out of the question for us to clamor for a more nuanced, thoughtful depiction of disabled characters. I mean, in truth, uh, being candid with you, our wonderful audience, that is the driving force of this segment every week is how is blindness, how can we do better, okay? How can we do the best that we can do? And in the case of Mr. Magoo, dare I say, this film personifies the worst that we can do. Why are we laughing at this nearsighted old man? Shouldn't we be getting him a pair of glasses that work better? or pairing him with a doctor who's able to do something about his eyesight situation. And it's actually compounded because the character is stubborn and doesn't really want this, giving us even more of a license to be able to go, oh, well, hey, he brought it on himself, let's laugh at him, rather than viewing the situation like you would with any other human being. Other thoughts, Santino? I don't even know if I have any other. I mean, like, it's just, it's everything you said. It's everything I said. And it's much, much more. It's like, and everything that we've said really covers how bad it is, but it's still somehow worse than, than, than everything that we've said. It is just the worst way to go about it. It doesn't properly utilize blindness in any stretch of the imagination. It doesn't, again, as a movie itself, again, I, I keep removing the blindness from it, but even as a movie itself, you don't get any real story. You don't get any real plot. There's nothing about the character that makes you want to like, you know, fall in love with him or be invested in him or any of the characters for that matter. And I get it's a comedy. You're not really supposed, it's not supposed to be that kind of movie, but it should have at least something. Like most comedies I watch, they have some kind of story. Like, in my opinion, I would put Night at the Museum in the category of a comedy slash, I guess, you know, maybe a little bit of an action, but it's mainly a comedy. It's meant to be a comedy. But you see the character arcs in fake characters, in, in exhibits in the museum. And I know it's a weird comparison, but I was just trying to think of another comedy that you could look at as, oh, it's kind of dumb, it's kind of stupid, whatever. You see more character arc from people that aren't actual, like, that aren't actual characters. And in this... It's just so bad, and I could go on forever about how bad it is, but 
we don't have that kind of time. I think it was a great way to close this out and kind of just encapsulate what was wrong with the movie, how we felt about it, which as you can tell, we both love the movie. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it was just not a great movie. Great way to close the segment. How out. many stars? Oh, negative two. Okay. Negative I, two. I, I, I can't. No, <laughs> negative two. Defies <laughs> uh, the ranking system. Exactly. So we'll move on to our last and final segment, Connecting the Dots, where, John, what are you going to be talking to us about today? Well, I wanted to talk about uh, sort of piggybacking off of what our guest discussed today. Um, I wanted to talk about loss, um, how to deal with it, and how to triumph over it. There was this one moment, <clears throat> I was in college, and we used to play pickup basketball. I was, <clears throat> I think, 19 at the time. And there came a point during the game while playing with um, the other dudes in my fraternity where someone passed the ball and um, I, couldn't, I couldn't pick it up in time. It, it hit me right in the head. And in that moment, I knew I had received my diagnosis uh, not too far removed from that moment. And I knew, wait a second, you're not going to be able to play basketball again. And I've heard often that it's through loss that people are truly tested in our most dire difficult moments where our backs are firmly placed against the wall, that's when the content of our character really comes into play. And at 19, I didn't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers now. No one does. But that moment where I realized you can't play basketball anymore. It's not safe. It's just going to get worse from here and you got to stop. That led me to trying to figure out how to cope. And there are lots of ways that people cope. People join support groups, uh, people talk to therapists, psychiatrists, people lean on friends and family, uh, close associates, uh, people pour themselves into their work. Um, there are a number of different strategies for being able to cope with loss so that you don't allow it to derail everything that you aspire to achieve in life. And in my case, tying this in strangely to Mr. Magoo, in those moments where you are, you're at your lowest, what I found is that laughter truly happens to be the best medicine. So how to make myself laugh? Well, I found there's this moment that happens, uh, I wanna say for most people, definitely for some, when you're a kid and uh, you realize, wait a second, movies can be bad. Wait, no, 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 I thought, because when you're a child and you're watching cinema, it's, presented as, oh, wow, this is all so grandiose. And look at these, these, these stars on screen and uh, these action sequences that are taking place. And it all, it all feels momentous and special and uh, really wondrous. But then along the way, you're going to see a movie and you're going to confront the reality that, oh, wait, 
sometimes movies can be bad. So for me, it was a film called The Stupids, because of course, with uh, Tom Arnold and Janine Turner, where while watching it, I went, oh, wait, wait, wait a second. This, this isn't good. They're, they're not succeeding. Even as a seven-year-old, I can recognize they are falling far short of their um, comedic goals in this enterprise. So while watching The Stupids, not only did I realize that movies had the potential to be bad, but that was something that you could actually celebrate. So when I'm down, when all I really need in life is to be reminded that you can laugh at things, that a spoonful of sugar truly does help the proverbial medicine go down. Yeah, I look for laughter. And I watch a great deal of bad movies because they always make me laugh because there's nothing funnier to me than a production that is trying to really nail it. They're trying to hit the mark, put something on screen that's to be treasured by generation upon generation and something really special. And then, hey, for whatever reason, it just doesn't work. We're not looking to punch down on the podcast. So best to put this into practice with, um, I lean on Vin Diesel. He's a big one for me. Uh, he is really one of the Pied Pipers of the bad cinema genre. And uh, it's something that I'm not alone in. There are four different bad movie podcasts that uh, I have on rotation. And let's say I've had uh, a difficult day. Um, one of those moments has come to the surface where someone has run up to me and they've started yelling at me about, oh, you're faking it. You're not really blind, blah, 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 blah. And they've really given me a hard time and making my life difficult. Well, when I get home, I'm going to go ahead and throw on a bad movie podcast and celebrate blissful, blissful failure. You have to have things in life that make you smile. For some, it's Marvel, it's Disney, it's Harry Potter. Any number of things can do this. Never allow anyone else to tell you that something sucks or that it's not important or don't allow them to attempt to trivialize it because ultimately how it makes you feel is what's truly important. And for me, because I'm a bit of a sadist, I suppose, bad movies are the best medicine and they have really helped me cope in the last 15, 18 years. Uh, so it's not a one size fits all. It's gonna be a different answer for everyone. Could be family, as I said, any number of solutions for how to effectively cope do exist. And um, your humble correspondent and host is a bit on the quirky side. So yes, watching horrendous Vin Diesel movies and being able to laugh at how appallingly awful they are is what makes me smile. So has Mr. Magoo been a movie that you've watched? To help no, you? <laughs> no, no. But in watching this, 
I was genuinely amused by the presence of Jennifer Garner in the movie, yeah. knowing, oh, wow, this is one that I'm going to guarantee she wishes um, that no one knew she was actually in. Uh, that was fun. The Malcolm McDowell. So there were there were some things about it that, yes, were fun from, a, oh, my goodness, this is such a train wreck that it's actually enjoyable. Yeah. Uh, however, the just sheer offensive nature of the Magoo character prevented me from enjoying it like I do mm, okay, something yeah. along the lines of Bloodshot or the Triple X franchise with Vin Diesel. Gotcha. That's the stuff right there, my man. <laughs> but just for bad bad movies in general, that then those are the kind of bad movies, and that's what that kind of just brings you joy in those moments. Yes. And that's the important thing to take away from the story, I think, is that you have to find your bad movie podcast. You have to that's find right. your equivalent to what makes you happy for me it is sports sports and more sports i can if i am not feeling okay if i'm just having a bad day things aren't going my way i will sit down and i will crank on some lebron james highlights some aaron Rodgers highlights old clips of just you know previous games that happened in what, what is it we just had march madness now so you could say march madness nba playoffs nfl etc cetera, etc cetera. bottom line is that is my bad movie podcast you have to find your equivalent and say, okay, you know what? What makes me smile? What makes me forget about everything else that's going on? All the bad stuff, all the things I hate in the world, all that kind of stuff. You can just sit down, be in your sanctuary and be, this is where I want to be. This is what makes me happy. That's, I think, the most important thing to take away is to find what makes you happy and what can try to help you bring yourself out of that proverbialized, I guess, dark place, if you want to say. Right. And again, I cannot emphasize this strongly enough. Do not allow what other people, unless it's hurting somebody, obviously, but if it's fairly innocent, like you're just watching bad movies because you think they're funny because they're so bad, don't allow other people to trivialize that. If that's what does it for you, great. Now, if you're not a sadist, uh, <laughs> then perhaps it's something else. Maybe it's sports, like it is for Santino, or like I mentioned, Disney, Harry Potter, um, the MCU, any of that type of stuff. There's no because what can happen is people can fall into substance abuse patterns and lean on drugs or alcohol to help them cope, and that is never the right solution. Um, it's never going to get you where you want in the end. You're going to have to find, and sometimes it requires some genuine creativity trial and error even too just trying to pick different things see what works mm -hmm. you're going to have to find what it is that helps to bring you out of the darkness so that you can like we talked about at the, uh, at the beginning of the show take a single step which then turns into a series of steps and then after a while you are jogging and then you're running I like the little tie in there. We, we tie in the beginning and the end of the show. I like that connection, uh, connecting the dots, little hint there. Um, thank you so much guys for listening to this week's episode of visionaries. We had a blast picking the topics, uh, very, very fun show. It was a pleasure to have Jennifer on earlier in our earlier segment. Again, thank you for listening. If you want to give us a follow at visionaries underscore podcast, give us a DM. If you have any suggestions, ideas, comments, anything at all, we will be taking those at any time, please send those in. Again, thank you for listening and we will see you guys next time. Talk to you later.